You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we explore digital culture, media, technology, and memes, featuring critical and empowering conversations with experts at the forefront of our digital moment. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is Dr. Jamie Cohen. Just two months after the Writers Guild strike began, the Screen Actors Guild began their strike on July 14th. This is the first time both unions have been on strike since 1960. That strike led to big wins for unions, including residuals, healthcare, and pensions. Today, actors and writers find themselves caught in a maelstrom of battles as studios grapple with the use of AI, content creators and influencers walk a gray line, the box office struggles to return to pre-COVID success, linear television is in decline, and union members and the general public wonder how to judge value in a moment when streamers don't release audience data to help the public understand what constitutes a success. Today, we're diving into two key issues around the strike. The first is AI algorithms and transparency, and the second is the role of influencers and creators in the broader ecosystem. We have a lot to get into on today's episode, and you can visit the show notes section to find full resources of everything we're discussing. You can help support the Digital Void podcast by following us wherever you get your podcasts and sharing the show with a friend and on social media. Now, here's today's conversation. Jamie, it is great to be in conversation with you about two really important issues driving the strikes. The first that we really want to focus on today is AI algorithms and transparency. One of the major wedge issues of the strike is that studios want to use AI to scan background actors to use in perpetuity in exchange for a single day rate instead of a background actor coming to a set for multiple days or multiple weeks to earn a living studios want to be able to scan an actor's physique and use it in perpetuity in addition to this there is a lack of transparency around recommendation algorithms and what and how films are greenlit or continued. I would love to help frame out this current strike by looking back to 2007 at the last writer's strike. So back in 2011, I was a faculty fellow at the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. When I was there, we got to listen to showrunners, uh, VFX artists, musicians, composers, storytellers, everybody basically tells about the state of the industry. And one of the last panels is about what happens over the next 10 years. And it was a good question because at the point we were having the discussion in 2011, YouTube at that point was competing in a way in terms of web television. And they had recognized the need for digital residuals that came from streaming. Hulu, which is co-owned by a lot of major companies, was basically the biggest competitor in terms of like how people were making earnings post-presentation. And so in 2007, years before this, there was the last WGA strike. The writer strike that happened in 2007 did a two-pronged thing. One was that they won, but at a cost. And at the cost that came from that was the degradation of the TV industry into non-scripted television, which is the primary rise of reality television. Uh, most people take it for granted now because we have well over 400 reality shows. But in 2007, there was like 12. There wasn't really many at all. And in the year 2000, there was five. This is a very new field of basically union busting, moving around that. So the lessons were learned because obviously that's not the way that people who go to television school, film school, or so forth want to end up working in the field. They don't want to end up as somebody who's post-producing or exploiting other people for entertainment's sake. So they realized that like these legacy television or prestige television were appearing 
at that same moment. Breaking Bad was at its peak in 2011. And uh, I remember uh, talking to uh, Peter Gould, who was the showrunner for Breaking Bad and writer. And uh, but Peter Gould had a lot of points about what's the future? Where is labor going to be in these places? And he said it has not a lot to do with respect. It has a lot to do with how we respect the actor and their art and what makes them unique and distinct distinctly different than something that can be fly by night or something that could be uh, hired on demand or even created. Now that was paired. That panel was paired with a VFX guy who worked on Boardwalk Empire, another prestige show at the time. And the guy who ran the VFX or uh, Boardwalk Empire said, you know, the future of television VFX isn't in CG. It's actually in video games. And everybody's like, whoa, what does that mean? And he said, it's because the generators, the processors that make backgrounds and make CG are easier if you make them automated. You know, you use the generation of an NPC inside of a video game and the more realistic it looks, it becomes your action character in the background. And so those who play video games know those NPCs in the background are becoming more and more realistic and human-like. And now most of the things you see on any video game today are body scans, full body scans with motion capture, which means that the facial expressions are all there. Now, the downside, even if you're a background actor, you still have the humanness qualities that you can't get in a CG experience or a VFX experience, what's known as micro expressions. Without the humanness of it, it's uncanny. It feels real, but something's just off. There's a discomfort to it. Now, from a studio perspective, Obviously, it's cheaper to hire a machine and a processor than it is to hire a human being who you have to feed, you have to get them there, you have to get the makeup on them. It means additional staff, it means uh, corralling, it means uh, management, handling locations, and there's so much that goes into just having human actors. On the other hand, what's the point of even shifting to a digital space if you have actors? Like what, you know, what, what keeps us desiring the idea of how to keep the industry going? I've worked with many, many bit actors and people whose side jobs are acting, especially like in New York City where CSI is dominant. They're background actors. How can you end up in this space now where you're going to be replaced by a mid-journey motion tracker, like basically creating you walking by? And now, of course, that's also weird for the actor themselves and they're acting because the humans, the bodies in the room, while they're not making any noise, and they're talking silently, are part of how you act. It's part of how you are there. And for those of you who are watching Disney shows like um, Secret Invasion or any of the MCU things, you could almost tell how cold it feels because of how much CG is in the scene. Is that the type of TV we want in the future? So it's a question for us, just as it's a, as a question for people who are running these things. Yes. And I'd love to own in on the television that we want for the future, because right now it seems like studios and corporations have framed this debate not around labor and money and collective bargaining, but rather around this binary battle between artificial intelligence and humans, which may indeed be fabricated. So I'd love to draw attention to the Screen Actor Guild's chief negotiator, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, said studio executives, quote, propose that our background performers should be able to get scanned, get paid for one day's pay, and their company should own that scan, their image, their likeness, and should be able to use it for the rest of eternity in any project they want with no consent and no compensation. So why is the framing of AI versus human actors incorrect? This isn't an issue of AI versus humans. Isn't this an issue of greed? Yes. Yeah. There, there seems to be this disconnect that happens with studios and, and studio heads and even the people that operate like as, as line producers or executive producers in the field. And this isn't to disparage all of them. This is just a minor few. But there's minor few that really have what's known as the company line ahead of the human line. And they really are encouraged to raise company profits above 
above everything else. So wherever they could cut costs is where they should be cutting them. And that's what line producers basically do. They're high-end accountants for verticals. Now, one of the stories that keeps appearing during this and appearing behind the scenes isn't just about like scanning a person and having their rights. The company owning a scan, like that's a, that's a digital asset. But what we've also seen in the last few days is this idea of how much disconnect there is between the show, the, the studios and the actors and the writers themselves. It really does come down to money. I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. There's a huge, vast income difference between the CEOs of many of these companies, the executive producers, and the, the people that make the projects. So we have to look at these people as the talent. They're the reason the executives work. They're the reason the studios exist. And so for somebody to talk about a human being scanned and getting paid for a singular day work, what does that mean for compensation? And what does that mean for reuse? If it's owned in perpetuity, which just that's just terms that sound scary, but that's like everything you ever sign is usually in perpetuity. But think, okay, let's just say that you're digitally scanned, you're stored on a hard drive, you're put into a GPU and 25 years from now, you're put in the background of a TV show, you're added to something, your likeness, and then you don't get compensated for your acting. You did the work and you weren't compensated for it. When you're a union member, you are part of a system that helps support what are the rights and experiences for the future of labor within that collectively. There's no collectivity if you're just a digital object. No collectivity. And it's interesting because I had a conversation with a, a SAG union member and the SAG union member said, it's not AI that we're against. We just want to be paid fairly if we're going to be scanned. They're not necessarily against the use of this technology, but they need an agreement that will allow them to earn residuals on it. Right. A, you can't stop the future. Like the, the progress is going to happen regardless. We're going to incorporate. This is like the, the VFX guy in 2011 knew this was the future. It's not like everybody's sitting there going, oh, this isn't going to happen. Like you mentioned at the beginning, like this 1960 strike led to the pension system that allows them to continue wanting to work for it and continue acting at the highest rate they can. It's what scales to everybody. It means that when you go to acting school and you graduate and you find your way into a union, you know how much you're going to be making. And by being able to make that much money, it's part of the economy. And since entertainment is the United States' biggest export, this really does come down to how much the union itself stands for its members against these systems of trying to exploit them. This isn't a sandbox. This isn't like a toy. This isn't, these aren't non-professionals. If you get in the union, you have achieved a, a basis of quality that is most likely hireable and, and compensatable for everything you do. Yes. And it was built on a system of perhaps not equity, but a greater degree of transparency and fairness. And I think one of the really tricky things as we've shifted from linear television and film to a streaming model is a lack of transparency in reporting data uh, specifically around financials and viewership. There is no Nielsen system to report ratings for Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Peacock, or any streamers. The data that we have available to us is only the relatively obscure data that streamers make available. For example, Netflix might announce that Ryan Reynolds and Gal Gadot and The Rock film is their highest or most watched film of the year. But it will not indicate what the total audience is for that film and what residuals may or may not come from it. And this spurred comment from Christopher Nolan on the effects of artificial intelligence and algorithms in streaming platforms. Nolan says, when you innovate through technology, you have to make sure there is accountability. A lot of companies for 15 years have bandied about terms like algorithm, not knowing what they really mean in any meaningful technical sense. These guys don't really know what an algorithm 
algorithm is or what it does. People in my business talking about it, they just don't want to take responsibility for whatever that algorithm does. Applied to AI, it has terrifying possibilities. How do streamer recommendations influence both audience and viewership habits in terms of not just what gets watched, but what gets made next? And to what degree is Nolan implying that? Yeah, I mean, Nolan is right here. Again, this reminds me of the past. It reminds me of uh, SNL's Lonely Island before the writer's strike. SNL brought in Lonely Island off of Channel 101 off the internet. So one of the first web channels pre-YouTube. And Lauren Michaels brought in Lonely Island to basically write these, what they call digital shorts. It was content that was going into what they now called the plus seven market. This is after the birth of Hulu. Nielsen can only rate based on what people are telling them. So Nielsen is a voluntary system. Nielsen represents people in the 10,000. So every human's representative of 10,000 people. And it's a statistic that tells you your ratings. Now, those ratings aren't for the, the actors. Those ratings are for the advertisers. How do people get paid? Let's think about like how money flows. When you run a prestige channel, let's say AMC, your goal is to sell cable boxes. Like you need to get people to rent cable box from a cable company, which is what's known as a carriage fee. So that means money is being paid across. And then you need to make sure that the ratings are high enough that advertisers feel like their ads are getting the return on investment in your time slot. So a lot of shows don't make it to second seasons, not because they weren't good. It's because they might be too niche for the market and the market itself can't hold them. So it's it, sometimes shows are too early or too late for their scene. These things happen. This is what television business is like. But when you're talking about streaming, what are they selling? So they're selling subscriptions because that's the way of selling the many streaming channels that are out there from Paramount Plus to Disney Plus to to any plus thing that's out there. And as we watch these conglomerations of Discovery turning HBO into Max and who knows what, you're watching money flows in ways that are considered extremely dark. And the term algorithm is so interesting in this case because it seems to be like this catch-all buzzword for the way that TV can be operated. And we have no proof that when Netflix is down or Netflix is saturated, and that means like there's an, all the people that could get Netflix have it. So what's, how are they going to make more subscriptions? There's no idea of what they do in terms of sweetening. You know, So sweetening is uh, when you add a piece of code that pushes something into somebody's screens and they may not be choosing it themselves, but actually the machine's choosing it for them. And in that way, how does an actor know if they're not being paid for that sweetening? Because there's a gap between the work they did and the sweetening that's getting there. So they might have expected let's say 100 million views. Let's just be like over the course of time, but they got 200 million, but they only got paid for the idea of 100 million, but the channel, the streaming provider sweetened it so that there's more people uh, consuming the content without the actor actually getting it. So there's no residuals. Whereas in reruns back in the day, syndication would occur after 100 episodes. You create 100 episodes, which is costly. And so when you hit 100, you could sell the rights to other channels. And then when those other channels, now you get a residual deal. So it means the actors now get money off the replays somewhere else because there's money from the advertiser moving. It's not a lot, but you know, it's enough to say my work is still being used. Therefore, I should still be paid. Authors get the same residuals when they write books. So when there's book is sold 20 years later, you might get a few dollars in the mail. You're like, oh, nice. It's still selling. But when somebody is streaming your content and they don't have a data source to give you that, you have no idea if it's zero or a million. And that million might, should be, maybe you should be getting $10,000. There's this black box of this is incredible. So algorithm has become this blatant uh, exploit of the entire industry because there's no way of actually proving what does 
make this work. And everything from algorithms is like, just so, I mean, for the listeners out there, every time you watch anything on any streaming channel, they're watching you watch it. That data does not belong to the actors, directors, and writers. Wouldn't a writer feel a little better if they could actually write better because they have the data? So these algorithmic realities that Nolan are talking about is really, yes, a 15-year problem. And I think he talks about 15 years in terms of like basically the foundation of our major streaming providers. So who is responsible for the code? This is the same question our digital void's been asking for as long as we've been around. Who wrote the code? What does the code do and who does the code benefit? Yeah. And it certainly is not benefiting the people whose creative and artistic and physical labor are going into making the works of art that are responsible for the majority of our entertainment and hours. And I think the interesting component as we look at algorithms and as we look at some of the emergent spaces over the last 15 years is the introduction of a new gray area in promotion, in sponsorship, collaborations, and even in acting spaces, because the rise of the influencer has created a new paradigm for studios, corporations, and creative agencies to begin to navigate in a way that they never had to navigate 15 years ago. Influencers and content creators fall into a great area. Most of them are not WGA or Screen Actors Guild union members, but form partnerships with studios to help promote projects that benefit the studios themselves. And so to address this, the Screen Actors Guild issued guidance for influencers to follow. This guidance includes essential do's and don'ts for influencers. We'll include it in the show notes for this episode. And it includes everything from organic promotion of struck films and television shows to whether or not an influencer should obligate their contracts to long-term consequences for accepting new work from struck studios. Callan Rosenblatt and Angela Yang of NBC highlight the influencer's dilemma and how they are intertwined with the strike. They write, when Ellen Orsi a digital creator who focuses on pop culture content, got a $5,000 offer to promote a large superhero franchise. She knew she shouldn't take the deal because of the strikes. While it is a lot of money right now, I just don't want to cross the line and make a quick buck now and potentially burn the bridge with wonderful creators of all types in multiple platforms in the future, Orsi said. So, Jamie, I'd love to dive into how the guidelines highlight the shifting digital ecosystem and why creators and influencers are just as vulnerable, but with no protections in sight. Well, first, hell yeah, Orsi. It is interesting that the influencers feel this way in solidarity with the actors. And there's two reasons for that. One, there's no structural support system in the influencer market. Robert Kinsel used to say, oh, I look out for the life, the lifestyles of the YouTubers is before you retire from YouTube. There's no boss. There's nobody telling you what to do. There's nobody offering you benefits. You have to make enough money to buy your own benefits. So that means you're, you have to work harder to be an influencer to make sure you just get basic needs. But many, this goes for Addison Ray, Charlie D'Amelio, any of the, the very popular influencers have pipelines to traditional television. You know, there's there's ways up. Even the admonished Miranda Sings, you know, Colleen Ballinger made her way to traditional television. The idea of acting or influencing or using your personality to entertain and influence others is a market. It is a space. The market of solidarity comes from that unionization. That market can't be exploited from the influencer space unless, of course, you just are writing that off. Now, I know there's this, this is a double-edged sword and a discussion for another time, which is like many influencers work specifically in opposition to these markets because they want to be free of the gatekeepers and, <laughs> and they want to run in the creator economy. That's fine. But if you're interested in being Part of the idea of being a human entertainer, 
stand up for what's right. Are they worth it? Are they worth taking this small bit? Especially in the, the Eleanor, see the character here, the the, the $5,000 to inf to do a offer is nothing. Nothing in comparison to the deal that actual actor would get, even on a, a circuit. Like, it's just unfair how influencers are treated. If there's going to be a support structure for influencers, it's going to come from these unions. Yes, and one of the conditions of the guidance is that an influencer who engages in work while the strike is ongoing will be banned from joining the union post-strike. So there are long-term consequences. And to your point, they are undervalued and underpaid to begin with. And they find themselves in a really thorny situation now because A, it is a total undervalue of their labor to be offered $5,000 for a promotion. But B, $5,000 to someone could be the difference between making rent or not. And so it is a really tricky situation depending on the level of influencer they find themselves in. So it is also the proposition of potentially being blacklisted from ever working with that studio again, even post-strike. So there are serious issues that these influencers have to grapple with, and there are no easy answers. And this seems like a trend because... Earlier this year, BuzzFeed CEO Jonah Peretti, following the closure of BuzzFeed News, outlined five predictions for the future of digital media. Again, we'll link to all five predictions in the show notes for this week's episode. But the third prediction was, I think, telling of this moment in particular, when Peretti predicts that creators and influencers will form alliances with media companies in order to help bypass the traditional or legacy structures. So how should we view and how should... Uh, creators and influencers view themselves within the broader context of this ecosystem and specifically speaking to exploitation and lack of organization. So Preddy here, I think, is worth listening to only because he's pointing out something about the industry that I think most industry people want to ignore, which is that they're, we're living through that merger. And legacy, whatever you want to call it, legacy or traditional media and new media are merging in real time. In fact, arguably, they've merged since COVID. The idea of holding out is just a matter of, of profit for the CEOs. And it's become more and more apparent. And everyone's seeing the curtain being pulled away and realizing it's just a guy with a microphone and a hologram and he just looks green, but he's just a dude. There is no power behind them except a funneling of finance to the top. There has to be an alliance that's going to come from this, whether it's today, after the strike, or later. But one way or another, the influencer market and the, the celebrity market are, have merged. Again, Will Ferrell bought Funny or Die back in 2008. Zach Galifianakis... A movie star and television star works as a internet celebrity. It's amorphous borders between these places, but the money is not amorphous. Hollywood has the money. Influencers don't. There has to be an alliance if the platforms are going to be a malleable surface. There needs to be an alliance for sure. I could not be in greater agreement. And this is going to be a really interesting story that unfortunately may not find its conclusion until what some project mid-September, sometime after Labor Day. So Jamie, thanks so much for diving into this. Uh, we will likely continue the very threads of this conversation in future episodes. Thank you for tuning into the Digital Void podcast. For more information, including references and show notes, make sure to check the website or the show description.